Hi, my name is Brenda Troth. My husband and I have been coming to Crosspoint for about 19 years. Um, we are covenant members. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 22. Let's hear God's word. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in a single day, 20,000 people died. Let us not test Christ, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I am speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. We've been in 1 Corinthians for a while, the last few, uh, few months. And this chapter in chapter 10 comes with a great warning to the church. And so this morning, my prayer has been for my own life and for us as a church family that we would really take these, heart, these words to heart and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and the renewing of the Spirit in us. We've learned about the Church of Corinth the last several months that um, they've been struggling with um, exalting human wisdom over godly wisdom. They profess to be believers. We know that Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says that uh, this list of, of sins that, that people are committing will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, but some were some, uh, such were some of, well, I'm not even getting it right. Some of them, some of that was you, that you're not that anymore, okay? 
There's divisions over the following of different leaders. We saw that in the early chapters. There's carnal behavior going on in the lives of the Corinthian believers. There's sexual immorality. We saw that in chapters 5 and 6. The use of Christian freedom against the weaker brother potentially causing fellow believers to stumble. And what I mean by that is the believer that says, look, I'm free in Christ. I'm free to do anything I want, right? All things are lawful, but not all things are permissible. But hey, I'm free in Christ. I can do these things. Well, no, you can't. If you're in a, in a situation where you have a weaker brother, you have someone that is, is, is struggling, as, as David's been preaching on, is that we, for the sake of the body, for the love for our Savior and for the love for our brother, we, we say no. We don't have to. Okay? But then we also have legalism from the weaker brother who's judging the conscience of the older brother. right? And this idea of how do I gain favor with God? How do I, how do I earn brownie points with God? So we see a lot of these things going on in the book of Corinthians. And then we get to food. Can I eat food that are offered to idols? Is that okay? And when is it okay? But specifically in this text, Paul is not addressing the Corinthian church in terms of what we saw in chapter 8, where it's a matter of conscience. What, the, what the ch- some of the church of Corinth is doing is that they are specifically, Paul is specifically addressing professing believers that in freedom are attending feasts at the local pagan temples. And what they're doing is they're claiming that, hey, I have freedom in Christ, I can go. And these professing believers are using the sacraments that are found in the church, specifically baptism and communion, as a magic covering for their sinful behavior. Rather than using the proper forms of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus for their sin and living a life that flees from idolatry, John Piper says it, first way, the, says it this way, the first mistake of some of the Corinthians made was that they overestimated the power of the Lord's Supper to make them immune to the destructive effects of idolatry. You remember in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul wrote and he said these words. He said, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sitting against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so Paul is addressing that saying, hey, you're in the temple. We know that, that what's going on is not pleasing to the Lord. In fact, as we're going to see later on in the book, that it is demonic right? It's not just worshiping a piece of wood. It's not just a piece of metal. It is worshiping demons. Boy, if that doesn't get the hair on the back of your neck bristling a little bit, that does mine. Idolatry, right? We think of idolatry as just, eh, well, you know, I'm just going to go see- seek this thing, and I'm going to go after this thing, and, and I'm going to pursue this thing because, God, you aren't, you aren't enough for me in this moment. And what's happening with the people is they're using this freedom and if this weaker brother looks at you and says, hey, why are they in the temple? We know what's going on in the temple. But hey, I'm using my freedom for Christ. He's saying to them, you are sinning. And so what's happening here is that the Corinthians, though, are challenging Paul. They're challenging their freedom that allowed them to attend the cultic meals. But Paul is exhorting the Corinthians in these meals that they are forbidden. They are expressions of idolatry. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have freedom in Christ. Don't get me wrong. But that freedom does not allow us to deliberately run headlong into situations that are expressions of idolatry. 
We are not to use the grace of God, as Paul says, to sin. We are to use the grace of God so that you and I can live all of life for the glory and the honor of Jesus so that we die to self. That's the beauty of the gospel. When Jesus came and lived our life and died our death and was buried and rose again and ascended into heaven, he broke the power of sin and death in our lives. He broke the power of idols in our lives so that we don't have to run to those things seeking to find identity and favor and hope and forgiveness and life, but we can run to the Savior. And so the idols of our heart need to be constantly addressed so that we are able to fight off those temptations. Stephen Um describes it this way. Idolatry is in the air that we breathe, and it's rarely explicit. Most people don't know that it's happening. They're not saying, I want this instead of Christ. They're saying, I want Christ plus this. To get, in, to get at the idols of one's heart, one has to step back and consider the way one's desires shape his or her life. What drives us to work or not work the way that we do? What causes us to eat and drink or not eat and drink the way that we do? What desires lie behind the way that we relate or don't relate to our spouse? What do we daydream about, fantasize about, long for? Do we often say, if I only had this, or if I only were like this, what is our desire pointing at? What is our affection pulling us toward? What is our end goal? And answering these questions will help one discover some of the layers of idolatry in one's own heart. He goes on to say that tragically, idolatry inevitably leads to living a double life. And this is what's happening in the Corinthian church. The Corinthians' deepest desire was to find a way to serve Christ and still remain acceptable in the public square. They wanted the benefits of the new creational order while still participating in the old creational order. They did not want to stand out. They didn't want their faith in Christ to threaten their ordinary lives. They wanted to participate in the shaping liturgy of the church while maintaining the shape of the liturgy of the surrounding culture. And as a result, they ended up trapped between two different versions of themselves. And they were leading double lives. Idolatry isn't a choice between two gods. It is an attempt to serve many gods at the same time. Idolatry is syncretism. Syncretism is the word that means the worship of many gods. Or put another way, idolatry is adultery. If you recall a few weeks ago, Dave preached on 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and at the end of chapter 9, Paul closes the chapter by exhorting the Corinthian believers to be diligent in every area of their walk with God. He said, do you not know that in the race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should not, that I, sorry, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is saying to us this morning, brothers and sisters, that we have an imperishable wreath in Christ, but it doesn't mean that in salvation we just, we just pray and we receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. There is also this process of sanctification where you and I, each and every day, are to pursue, to abide, to fellowship, 
after our Savior, to discipline ourselves. Because when we live a life of undisciplined, undisciplined, Paul says that, and we're going to see it in just a moment with the people of Israel, we can become disqualified. What does that word disqualified mean? It means phony, fraudulent, having a misleading appearance. I don't know if many of you remember Ravi Zacharias, right? I loved Ravi Zacharias. He was impactful in my life. I could listen to Ravi Zacharias, but after Ravi Zacharias passed away, all these things came out about the duplicitous life that Ravi Zacharias lived. Broke my heart. Why? Because are there people that probably came to salvation under the ministry of Ravi Zacharias despite Ravi Zacharias? Yes. But the message to hear now from someone like that, it's hard to hear, isn't it? Why? Because he allowed idolatry. He allowed himself to become undisciplined. Personal illustration. Two weeks ago, came down really, really sick. And finally went to the doctor, went to the hospital here in Eureka on Thursday a week ago. The doctor's like, you have, uh, I think you have COVID. And so I'm really, really, really sick. And, I'm, and, and he's like, you know, I'm not going to do anything for it. You're just going to have to wear it out, wait it out. And my wife said, look, my husband has a lot of autoimmune stuff. He, he's, he's constantly getting sick. He doesn't feel well. Whenever this hits him, he, he, uh, he gets really, really sick. And so therefore, he, he took the test. I had it, really sick. Still not better, but I'm getting there. But he said these words to me. He said, Mr. Wolf, you need to change your way of life. I have an idol in my life. That idol is food. Anybody else have the idol of food? Right? And I love food. And I've gained weight. And, and, and what he was telling me is, you need to make life changes. You need to eat better. You need to exercise. You need to discipline yourself. Because if you continue in the path that you're going... If it was 10 years from now, you probably wouldn't be here. Those are chilling words to hear, aren't they? And I thought about that when I think about this passage, that it is a greater... Now, the alternative for me is great. I'm going to be with Jesus. I, I look forward to that day. But I also have a life that is... He's given me every breath, as we sung about this morning, to praise Him, to glorify Him, to live for Him, to exalt Him, to help point others to Him, to love my wife, to love my children, to love my neighbors, to love my enemies, to live a life that is glorifying to Him. And so for me to discipline myself so that I can be a picture of what Christ has done breaking into my life and what He continues to do. And so this morning I want us to highlight two major themes that Paul is addressing in the lives of the Corinthian believers for us and for us as followers of Christ today, two main themes. The first one is the warning and danger of idolatry. And the second one is the incompatibility of idolatry with the gospel. The warning and danger of idolatry and the incompatibility of idolatry with the gospel. First of all, the warning and the danger of idolatry. The most basic sin, R.C. Sproul says, 
The most basic sin found in the world is that of idolatry. Charles Spurgeon says that each and every one of us is a walking and talking idol factory. Another pastor says it this way, let me tell you, here's the secret that so many people are ignorant of. Idolatry is not just another sin. Idolatry is the underlying root cause of all sin. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's look at verses 1 through 5, begins by reminding the Corinthians of their forefathers. I love it because he uses the whole story of God. He's not just using a modern example, but he goes all the way back into Exodus. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. And they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so Paul uses what we call typology. And he, and he refers back to Exodus. And then what he does is he brings what we call anti-type into the, the Corinthians' uh, the context. So you've got typology, and I'm going to explain that in just a moment, and anti-type. What is anti-type? Something that corresponds to, that is foreshadowed in a type of symbol. Christ is the messianic reality which fulfills most particular pre-messianic figures in the Old Testament. For example, the Lamb of God. He is the anti-type and the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. Right? So in Exodus, you have the Passover Lamb. Sacrifice wasn't sufficient enough to save, but Jesus is the anti-type, the fulfillment of that type, who came to be the ultimate sacrifice. You understand where I'm going, okay? So Paul begins, right, describing the, the people of Israel. They're chosen, God's chosen people. Why? Because they were so great? No, God, because God is gracious. And in Genesis chapter 12, he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. From you are going to come many descendants. Why? So that I can uh, receive glory. I can glorify my name through you, Right? God has always desired to have a people in whom he can show his glory to and through whom he can show his glory to the nations. And that's who the people of Israel were. Not because they were any special group of people, but because God in his grace chose them. And so he brings them out of Egypt. We know that. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And they experienced the blessings of God in so many amazing ways. And so Paul refers, first of all, to the cloud, right? The pillar of cloud that passed through the sea. Okay, Exodus 13, 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And if you remember, the Lord moves the cloud behind them when the Egyptians are pursuing them. The Israelites get past the Red Sea. The Lord moves the cloud. The Egyptians pursue them and then all the water crashes in. So the cloud was representative of God's presence with his people, his direction, his leading. And what Paul says is with Christ, his presence now indwells his children through his Holy Spirit. Corinthians, you have the very power of God residing in you through the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. That is great news. the presence of God to overcome all temptation and trials. He goes on to say that they passed through the Red Sea and were baptized into Moses. Now, this isn't baptism as we know baptism, okay? But what happened was is they passed through the Red Sea. That was symbolic of baptism, deliverance 
right? And Moses was God's ordained leader to lead him to the promised land, but Moses was not the Savior. Jesus is the better Moses who will save their people from their sins. And so Jesus saves them from the penalty and the power of sin and death. And baptism, as we know it, in the day of the Corinthians, was an outward expression of an inward truth of what Christ has done in us. And we are declaring to the world that this is who God is, this is what he's done through his son Jesus Christ, and this is who I am, and I identify with Jesus, and I want to live my life to please him. Paul goes on to also say that they ate the same spiritual food. What was that same spiritual food? It was manna, right? We talked about it on Wednesday that God fed millions of people every single day for 40 years with manna. But we also know in John chapter 6 that manna wasn't enough to save. Jesus in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread of life. His body, as we're going to celebrate today, was broken for our sin. It also goes on to say that they drank the same spiritual drink. Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. You remember, the people are grumbling and complaining, and Moses, why are we out here? And you, you, you just brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, and they're complaining because we're thirsty. And God says, I want you to take your staff, and I want you to strike the rock. Paul even refers to Christ as the rock, not that there was this physical rock that followed them, but we know that there was one rock, Jesus Christ, who was struck once on the cross. His blood was shed so that we can have salvation, the greatest cleansing agent of all, the blood of Jesus Christ, to cover all of our sins. That's why in Numbers, when Moses... Remember, God told Moses, speak to the rock, Moses. And what did Moses do? He hit the rock twice. Jesus didn't need to be crucified twice. Jesus was crucified one time for the sins of all mankind. Paul says, I don't want you, friends, to be ignorant of the fact that these people were immersed in the community that saw God do great, immeasurable, and innumerable things, yet they did not Walk by faith. And that's the scary part about this passage, brothers and sisters. Nevertheless, in verse 5, most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You see, what's going on in the life of the Israelite, the people of God, is that they presumed on God's goodness. They did not have love for God, but they only had love for, many of them only had love for what God would give them. And the struggle with sin is just like us today, isn't it? The same struggle in the Corinthian church is some of them are saying, God is gracious. He's not going to, he's not going to, uh, he's going to let my, he's going to overlook my sin. He's not going to be a, a just and a righteous God in this. God is love. He's not going to punish me. And they continued on in their idolatry and they continued on in these areas of sin. One commentator says this, why did the Israelites perish in the desert? 
Despite the miracles that God performed to lead them out of Egypt, these Israelites lacked faith in God. They crossed the Red Sea, never lacked daily food. They drank water from the rock. They were sheltered from the scorching sun by the cloud that accompanied them. They received numerous other blessings. Instead of worshiping God, the Israelites served idols which they had taken along from Egypt. At Mount Sinai, they formed the golden calf and they worshiped it. These rebellious Israelites failed the test of faith. And Paul intimates those Corinthians who engage in idolatry similarly who engage in idolatry similarly, similarly, I can't even say that. (laughs) Similarly, fail to serve God. Friends, I think of those words in the New Testament. Many, many will say, Lord, Lord, look what we did. We cast out demons. We prophesied. We went to Cross Point Church. I served in, in, in Sun Chasers. I helped with hype. I led worship. And the Lord looks at them and he says, Depart from me, you doers of iniquity, because you did not do the will of my Father. Friends, faith. Faith. It's not just some knowledge about God. It's not just some, hey, I'm partaking of these blessings. But it's faith and trust and belief. Paul goes on to expose Israel's idolatry in four specific examples. The first one is the golden calf in verse 7. Remember the people of Israel, Moses is gone. They're like, hey, he's gone. Aaron, make us a calf. And and Aaron should have been a leader. Aaron should have said, no, we're not going to do that. But Aaron has fear of man issues, and he does what they ask. And so he gets all of their gold. He fashions a golden calf. And in Exodus 32, it says they rose up, early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now those words rose up to play, okay, I know we have younger children in this room, okay, sexually inappropriate behavior. So we're going to party. We're dancing around this golden calf. We're going to be immoral in our behavior. Remember the Ten Commandments. First four, deal with our relationship with God. The last six, deal with our relationship with others. And because of the first four of our relationship with God, it's important that the first two really set the stage. If we don't get the first two right, brothers and sisters, it sets the tone for how we interact with God and those around us. The first two, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven image and worship it. And the very thing that God had just said to them God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And all the people say, we will obey you. And the next thing you know, they're turning around and they're fashioning a golden calf and they're dancing around it and they're acting immorally. God is very clear, brothers and sisters. He will not share his glory with anyone or anything else. He says, I am the Lord in Isaiah 42, verse 8. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The second sin that they were involved in was sexual immorality. In Numbers 25, verse 1, it says, While Israel living in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Again, with some of the audience here, we're not going to go into great detail about that. You as adults know what I'm talking about. God said you're going to be a distinct people. Stay away from the Canaanites. Stay away from the Moabites, the, the Hittites, the Jebusites, all those people, because they're going to draw you away not only in idol worship, but in their behavior. 
And it says that Israel, they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And what was the consequence? 23,000 people died in the wilderness. Physical death. God's judgment came. The third sin of idolatry that they were doing is putting God to the test in verse 9. Numbers 21, verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Remember when, when the people of Israel said to Moses, hey, um, it would, be, would have been better if we stayed in Egypt. Would it have? No, because Egypt is a picture of bondage. And so these people are grumbling. They're putting God to the test. God, why have you brought us out here? Why do you have us out here in the wilderness to die? And all along, God has promised what? I'm faithful. I'm good. I'm gracious. I'm great. Think about that. He just parted the the Red Sea. He just took a huge body of water and pushed the, the the water up on walls so that six million people could walk across on dry land. But God, why have you brought us out? And they put God to the test, and we know the story that the deadly serpents came into the village and began to to, to strike the people, and the people are crying out, and they're saying, hey, deliver us, deliver us, and Moses makes the bronze snake, and he puts it up, and he says, if you look at the snake, you will be delivered from death. Again, another picture of the one who's going to be lifted up on the cross, who's going to pay for the sins of yours and myself. The fourth sin, and this one might hit home for some of us, and I struggle with this myself in my own life and asking God to help me, is grumbling and complaining, verse 10. Numbers 14, 1 through 2, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept at night, and the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we would have would would what we ha- would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness and the story of the sons of Korah and they're rising up and any you want to destroy a church friends you go around and you begin to complain and grumble to one another about what's going on and the lord doesn't take too kindly to that it says that the angel came the destroyer came and destroyed many of them. The sons of Korah says that the earth opened up, swallowed them and all of their family. <coughs> See, many of them experienced physical death, and in fact, all of the adults in that generation died in the wilderness, unable to enter the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. So what's Paul's purpose in sharing these? Because Paul was probably undoubtedly um, dealing with some of these issues with the Corinthians. Complaining to Paul, like, who do, who do you think you are? Who are you to say that we can go to the temple and we can do this and we can do that? One commentator says, back up, verse 11, Paul says to them, these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. See, Paul in his love for the Corinthian church is saying, look, I am sharing this with you because this is vital. This is dire. This is important. 
The idolatry of the people of Israel brought great judgment. And I would say for many of them, eternal damnation. And Paul is saying, I love you enough to say, look, we've got to, we've got to deal with the idolatry of our heart. This is for us to learn from them so that the same thing doesn't happen to you. The commentator, one commentator says, the sins of the people of God under Moses have an ominous ring in terms of the known and the likely sins of the Christian community at Corinth. Covetousness, idolatry, immorality, straining the patience of the Lord. This is what's going on in the church of Corinth and grumbling against the Lord. Specific events in the wilderness wanderings were doubtless in Paul's mind and he especially recalled the golden calf, the hankering after the flesh pots of Egypt, the mass immorality of the daughters of the Moabites and the story of the brazen serpent. The narrative of events that period does not make very pleasant reading, does it? But here's the point. Paul effectively told the Corinthians in their presumed spirituality not to boast about their spiritual condition. We are all in a perilous position, says the apostle, if once we allow ourselves the indulgence of thinking that sin does not matter. Sin matters, brothers and sisters. It matters. They thought that the combination of the sacraments and their spiritual experiences was sufficient to protect them from falling away. And they were relying in an almost quasi-miraculous way on God-given means of grace and God-given experiences rather than on God himself in Christ. A form of religion, but devoid of godliness. And what this attitude does, brothers and sisters, is it shortcuts the purpose of the God, gospel story, God's story. We're going to talk more about this on Wednesday. Creation, rebellion, promise, redemption, church, restoration. Many people stop at the cross. I'm saved. I got my ticket punched to heaven. I'm going. I'm good. I don't need to worry about this. But the gospel is so much more than that. Yes, we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved to... to to something also, brothers and sisters, and that is righteousness, that is worship, that is glorifying our King. It's not like you and I just pray the prayer and receive salvation and go, ah, I'm just going to go live the way I want. No, that's not how the Christian life works. And so Paul goes on to exhort the Corinthians again in, in, in uh, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore, if anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, excuse me, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The first thing that Paul says to them is, look, do not trust in yourself to overcome temptation. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. John Piper says it this way. In other words, they saw eating the bread and drinking the cup as a kind of sacramental antidote to any ill effects that might come from tasting the poison of idolatry. And so they overestimated the power of the Lord's Supper. They were cocky. Hey, we're good. I can handle this. And what Paul is saying to them is no. We rely on God's power to overcome any temptation that he's given us the power to overcome it. He says there is no temptation that is not common to man. Friends, you and I will never deal with any temptation 
that, that, that other people have not dealt with. It is not just like, boy, I'm in this place, right? John MacArthur says it this way, the Corinthians were no doubt wondering how could they possibly avoid all the pitfalls that Paul had just described and illustrated. How do we keep from craving the evil things as Israel did? How do we keep from falling into idolatry in our hearts? How can we live righteous lives when the society around us is so wicked? How can we avoid trying the Lord and how can we keep from grumbling? Pastor Dave, you don't understand my job environment. You don't understand my home life. You don't understand my classroom at school. You don't understand the team that I play with. Listen, Paul is saying that none of us deal with any temptation that is not common to other people. As I shared with you before, right, as, a, as a, again, a personal example, food, right? Anybody else struggle with food, right? It's nothing new. It's nothing out of the ordinary. But he goes on to say these words, God is faithful. The beauty about that, brothers and sisters, is he wants us to come to him in absolute dependence, faith, trust, humility, brokenness, and he's the one who's faithful to complete what he started. It's not like he looks at you and says, hey, you've got to figure this out, and you've got to, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstrings, and you've got to figure this out. And No, God is faithful, which means he's characterized by steadfast affection or allegiance to you and me as his children. Friends, he's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you powerless, even when your friends abandon you in school students, even when your co-workers make fun of you, even when your unsafe spouse says, I'm done with you. God never does. His death, his burial, his resurrection secured our victory over sin. And he says, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. means to be able to be or become sufficient to meet a need or task. Jesus is the better. I love when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, right? Their lives are on the line. You will bow down or else you're going in the fiery furnace. And this is what they say. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Do you realize, young people, that every other Israelite that was taken into captivity, was bowing at the, at the instruments. There were three that believe this, that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. We believe our God is going to deliver us, but even if he does not, we've lost nothing. We've lost nothing because we have the ultimate in him. With temptation, he will always provide a way of escape, Paul says, that you may be able to endure it. See, friends, we have no excuses when it comes into giving into temptation. God always promises us a way of escape. Why? Because the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead lives in his children. We never go into a, temp a temptation, right, a testing, a trial, without the promise of our Savior being present with his children and always delivering a way of escape. So when I go back to that food, and, and I'm a big hamburger guy, actually cheeseburger guy, I love cheeseburgers, right? And I can down three or four in a sitting, I, I kid you not. I'm like a Hoover, right? And it's just, right? The next time I go to a church uh, pot providence, not potluck, you'll figure that out later, pot providence, not potluck, because there's no such thing as luck. It's always God's providence, right? 
I stole that from Paul Tripp. That's not original. Next time I go and there's cheeseburgers sitting there, and I have this moment to say, boy, I really want to eat a whole bunch of those. God has always given me a way of escape. He may sound funny, but the reality is, Jesus, I want you more. I want you more. I don't want the fleeting, passing pleasures of cheeseburgers because guess what? In five or six hours, I'm going to want more cheeseburgers. Seriously, think about when you eat. We don't just eat one time. We eat three times a day, seven, t- seven days a week. It never satisfies. And as we talked about on Wednesday, it's every time we sit down to eat, it's an opportunity to worship our Savior and thank Him for the absolute provision of life that he's given to us, specifically through himself, but then also in his daily provision for us at the table. God will provide a way out of genuine trials, he assures them. But my dearly beloved brothers and sisters, that does not include headlong pursuit of idolatry. And so Paul warns about the dangers and the destruction of that real quickly as we're running out of time. Incompatibility of idolatry with the gospel. Paul goes on to say, Therefore, my beloved, so then because you have the power of Christ living in you, the promise of his presence, the promise of escape, flee idolatry. I've given you a way of escape. You don't have to run to this thing. You don't have to run to this person. You don't have to run to this job. You don't have to run to this bank account. You don't have to run to this car. You don't have to run to this circumstance. You don't have to run to this house. You don't have to run to this relationship. Run to me. Find your joy and satisfaction in me. Flee, uh, flee idolatry. And he goes on to describe communion, and we won't spend a lot of time talking about this this morning as we're running out of time, but it's the sacrament that's ordained by Jesus for the church to celebrate on a consistent basis. It's where we remember the perfect sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood that was broken and shed for us so that we could be made right with God the Father. And during that time of communion, we confess our sin individually, but we also celebrate corporately as a body of believers that we're united by salvation and declare to one another the beautiful gospel. And the Corinthians aren't using it this way. It was an attitude of, what is God going to do to me because I'm covering my sin with communion? And so in verses 16 and 17, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is, this, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And through these verses, Paul is reminding each and every one of us, the church, that communion is a reminder of the participation, the fellowship. It's that word koinonia that we have through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, first of all with him, but also with each other. And the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group, especially used in marriages or churches, that's what it means to participate, to fellowship. It's an intimate association, brothers and sisters. And so when these Corinthians are going into this temple and they're eating uh, food and worshiping these sacrifices, they're, they're actually participating in the worship of those beings. Al Mohler says it this way, when the church celebrates the Lord's Supper, they participate or share in Jesus' death by fellowshipping with Jesus through a covenant renewal ceremony. That's why communion, brothers and sisters, is so important. 
It's not that you get a little wafer and a little glass of grape juice. It's not a snack on Sunday morning. It's a time of remembrance, a time of fellowshipping. The church, he goes on to say, spiritually nourishes themselves by exalting in what Jesus accomplished for them through his death and the blessings that flow from it. And the church, as a unified whole, celebrates the Lord's Supper together. Vertical fellowship with Christ creates horizontal fellowship with Christ's body. I love that. It's not just the vertical side of it. It's an encouraging in each other of the gospel. And so when we leave this place on a Sunday morning, that we go out and we live for God's glory. We live for God's fame. We encourage each other when we're struggling. We walk with one another through our mess and through our sinfulness. We point one another to the one who has saved us and who has redeemed us. Beauty. Communion. But then he goes on to describe the cultic feasts. And we'll close with this. Paul's talk of communion is to set up this important premise that we are not to share in unions with any other God. He says, what do I imply then that food offers to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Paul is saying, look, it's not the piece of wood. It's not the metal. It's not the object. It's not the circumstance. They're not, they're not worth anything. He says, I imply, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul is very clear. I don't want you to participate in demonic activity. You can't partake of the Lord's cup and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so these words function as both a warning and a prohibition. They warn in terms of the following rhetorical questions. They prohibit in the sense of pointing out the absolute incompatibility of the two actions. Idolatry is incompatible with the gospel. The gospel takes place to break the power of idolatry in our lives. One is not merely eating with friends at the pagan temples. One is engaged in idolatry. Idolatry that involves an association with demons. Friends, it's, it, it provokes God's jealousy. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? One commentator says, most likely this is the final warning that God's jealousy cannot be challenged with impunity. Those who would put God to the test by insisting on their right to what Paul insists is idolatry are in effect taking on God, challenging him by their actions, daring God to act. Secure in their own foolhardiness, they think of themselves as so strong that they can challenge Christ himself. And friends, let me tell you, you will not win that battle. <laughs> we see it in the lives of the Israelites. We're going to talk about it in 1 Corinthians 11. There were some that were even taking the Lord's Supper in vain. And it says many of them, have, some of them have died. So what does this mean for us? Number one, truth to life. How does this impact us? First of all, are you even born again in the Spirit of God? Have you really put your faith and trust in the person and the work of Jesus? Or are you like some of those Israelites that had a knowledge of God 
They experience God's blessing, but they have not lived by faith in him. Friends, if you are not born again in the Spirit of God, you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, you are going to continue on in idolatry and it will lead to your destruction. I cannot say that lovingly enough to you. Number two, if you are a follower of Christ, what are, idols of, what are, what are the idols of your life? Again, it may not be the specific objects as you said before. What is it that, as, as Stephen um said, what am I fantasizing about? What am I longing for? If I only had this, Ask the Spirit this morning as we prepare for communion to help you identify what those idols might be. And what steps this morning do you need to take to flee that idolatry? Maybe you need to go and get rid of some things in your life. Confess, repent, share with your community how they can help you live. Maybe go to a brother and sister this morning during communion and say, look, I am struggling I'm really struggling. This idol is in my life. That happened to me in my former church. I was going through a really dark time in my life and the Spirit of God was convicting me and right during communion I walked over to a fellow brother and I just pulled him aside and we went outside and I just poured out my heart to him about sinfulness that I had going on in my life. Maybe you need to do that this morning. Timothy Keller says you know that something is an idol in your life to the degree of emotion that you show when that thing is taken away from you. You know something's an idol in your life to the degree of emotion when that thing's taken away from you. As the First Impressions team comes for communion, I want to invite you to, to work through those questions on your own. Ask the Lord to help you to identify those and you can begin to pass out the, the, the elements and then we'll take communion together and close with, with a song of worship together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you challenge us, Lord, to deal with the idolatry of our hearts. And Lord, all of us in this room, Lord, we have idols. Things that we run to, hoping that they will give us satisfaction. And they never do. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to deal with our hearts today. Because Lord, my, I, I, I don't ever see anybody in Crosspoint and even, Lord, others in Eureka that don't know you Lord, I don't want to see them standing before you in judgment. I want us to be around the throne of grace together, singing and praising you, the one who has saved our soul, the one who has delivered us by your death, your burial, your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, and your ascension. You've delivered us from idolatry. And so help us this morning, Lord, to deal with our heart, to confess that. If we need to go to somebody, if we need to, Lord, when we get home today, get rid of something, Spirit of God, do a work in us. Thank you that you are with us and that you never let us go beyond something that you have not given us the power to say no to. Because Lord, that's what you do. It's not us. It's not me just determining harder. It's trusting you because you are faithful. That you are enough. That you are more. That you are greater than anything that this life has to offer. Lord, I love you. I love this church. Help us to deal with our hearts right now in communion as the elements are passed. As I said earlier, communion is a very special moment, hopefully one that we don't take lightly. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat in remembrance of Christ's body broken for us. In the same way, it says that he also took the cup. And after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember, Jesus' blood satisfied the wrath of God so that you and I never have to experience the wrath of God ever. That's great news. Let us drink the cup together. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the greatest gift of all. Thank you for all that you've given to us, that you've provided for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would be joyful and cheerful givers out of an abundance of what you have given to us, namely your son. Thank you for this body, Lord. Would you help us to flee from idolatry? Help us to identify those things that keep us from loving you and experiencing you and fellowshipping with you, Lord, in, in just the utmost opportunity that we have. Lord, teach us to abide. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes this in uh, Titus 3. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But, verse 4, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Loved ones, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have been enabled by the Holy Spirit and by the good news of the gospel to live in new ways. May we do that for his glory this week.